0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybetmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program.
1: Are we being recorded today? OK, I'll speak less freely. No, I'll speak just as freely as I was before. Because I, I, don't, I want to know just if anyone knows Malaga Cove Intermediate School in the suburb of Los Angeles, Palos Verdes Estates. Um, perhaps my sixth grade English social studies teacher, Miss Lyle? Miss <laughs> Nancy Lyle? She drove a green Carmen Ghia? Okay. Then I'm free to speak openly. (laughs) In sixth grade, we had a lesson in social studies where we received a, a sheet that described people in the following categories. There were Mongoloid people. And a Mongoloid person, we learned, had slanted eyes and yellow skin. There was... A Negroid group. Negroids had flat lips and a dark complexion. And then there were Caucasoids. Caucasoids had white skin and average features. Can you imagine the exam we had at the end of that unit? Okay, I'll tell you what it was. The true false section Mongoloids have dark skin. That would be false. Because we learned that Negroids had dark skin. And then there was matching, where on one side of the sheet they had all the different categories, and on the other side of the sheet were attributes, and you had to draw a line across the page to connect one side to the other, um, and then fill in the blank. That's where they give you a whole sentence about Caucasoid, but one line, one word is missing, and you'd have to know what that word is. To to uh, to fit to fit it in. So what can I say other than um, Jews, whiteness, power, and privilege are the subject for today. Good afternoon. Great to be here, and uh, and I just have to speak nicely of Miss Lyle. So um, maybe it's meaningful that in my middle age I still remember a specific unit from sixth grade. Um, Maybe because it was so traumatizing, I don't know. Um, this was in the public school curriculum for the state of California in the 1970s. So Ms. Lyle was simply teaching what every single middle school kid learned growing up, and I don't know in other states in Arizona what it was like, and I just want you to know the first time I wrote this lecture, thanks to the internet um, and three hits of the return key, I found Ms. Lyle, um, who had retired from teaching but had become a librarian in the neighboring district and I invited her and she came and attended The first time I told that story and then I introduced her to the group so I don't because she remains one of my favorite teachers notwithstanding the fact that she is unwittingly the subject of um, Of this lecture, so here's what I do if you are my undergraduates welcome we have any um, four hours right now. You said for us to cover this. Thank you um, so you have the outlines. If, if you were uh, taking notes, you would use this outline in order to uh, follow along and, and see how we're doing. I have an historical question. And uh, for me, the historical question uh, is what I am charged with doing today. Are Jews white? What are its implications? And, uh, and, and, and this, this is it. So. Just to give away the ending, here's my thesis. It's word-dense, so I'll read it to you. And you also have it in front of you if you'd like to keep it. You know, Give it to your grandkids, frame it. Um, Jews, more than any other American ethno-religious group, maintain an ambivalent, if ever-changing, relationship to whiteness. Over time, place, and person, its very definition proves contested. Ultimately, Jewish whiteness exposes the dynamics of privilege and the powerful the privilege and the powerful sometimes destructive ways it's played out in American Jewish life. So that that is your lead-in to to where we're heading, where we're heading. All right. This is what I call a rhetorical question. That means I oh, we already have a question, yes. Well, but it doesn't apply to Jews, just American
0: Jews, because in Israel you have all these- Jews from North Africa
1: and Yemen and Ethiopia. Yeah, thank you. You're already on page six of my lecture. <laughs> well done. What's your name? Herschel. Herschel, nice to meet you. Yes. Um, so uh, I am assuming Eastern European descended white American Jews for this, a community which is what's, what's called Oshki normative, which means typically that's what people think Jews are before they know anything. And as soon as they start understanding, Um, that more and more American Jews, not to mention Israeli Jews, actually don't fit even phenotypally white, uh, then we see that. Uh, So Herschel, I I just want you to know that um, in my class, my students, they get prizes for really good questions or really good answers. Um, I didn't expect in this group to to have a prize-worthy comment so early, uh, but you have clearly earned it. So I'm going to put down the mic for a moment so I can get you your prize. I joke with my students that um, with ever-rising public school tuition, that when I get my first million-dollar paycheck from my university, I'm going to cover their tuition, knowing I can make that promise because it's never going to happen. So in the meantime, I have pencils. Not ordinary pencils, genuine Jewish studies-themed pencils. And I want all of you to know, because we we are of the same generation in this regard, My undergraduates have never used one of these in their entire lives. (laughs) They don't know what it is. They don't know what to do with it. So uh, I know it's sad. Yeah, so take your pick. You can trade later, but I just need to get on with the lecture. I'm an American Jewish historian, so you just got the preamble to the Constitution. And what I'm going to do for everybody else is just put them there to entice you. and while he certainly didn't know this was in the script, um, Rabbi, if I could interrupt you and call you up here for a moment. I have a little presentation for you, you see. Um, I don't usually get called Yeah, you've been called to the teacher. So, so uh, my students like the pencils for two or three weeks. Then they start rolling their eyes at me with the pencils. They get kind of stupid. So I actually have a level two prize that I give out, <laughs> right? And, and, and I have to keep upping my game. And over 15 weeks, the highest level prize is level 7. I don't always get there, but uh, Rabbi, you're going to get the level 7 prize tonight, so, so this afternoon. Here is your level 7 prize. It's the Professor Dollinger pen. It's purple. That's our school color. It has my name and my email address on there so that they can you know write me. It says, Go Gators. So, um, just so you know, it's a little weird. You have to twist this thing at the end to get the pen to come out, because it does have a cap. If you could pull the cap off on the other end, it's really hard to pull off, but you have to pull. There it is. Show, show it to him. Oh, my gosh. It's a 16-megabyte memory chip. The, ooh, I know. That's, the, you know. So, Rabbi, I want you to know that uh, you especially uh, have a particularly challenging rabbinate in that, on the one hand, You um, are tradition-based in rabbinic text, in halakha, and your understanding of it. On the other hand, you're living in 21st century Arizona, and you're dealing with so many modern issues. How does a rabbi navigate tradition and modernity simultaneously? I want you to know, if I can see that for a second, that more than just a writing implement, this is a metaphor of your professional career. You see? If you are ever feeling tradition-bound, use the ink and actually write a letter with a stamp in an envelope. That will take you back in time. And when you're feeling modern, you just flip this out, put it in the side of that computer. You're all digital all the time. This is the modern rabbi. There you go. Thank you.
0: I can assure you my daughter will take possession of this one.
1: (laughs) All right. So this is a rhetorical question, which means you don't really answer it. Do you consider Jews white? Uh, And this would be Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews. And it really comes up for most people on affirmative action forms. This is the triggering moment for many Eastern European Ashkenazi-descended Jews because it has spaces for lots of different categories, but it doesn't have a space for Jewish. And then at the bottom, it has a box that says other or something, or fill in the blank. So sometimes white Jews click white. And sometimes they protest the whole idea of their racial classification. They check other and they write in Jewish just so everybody knows. So in our time today, we're going to approach the topic this way. One, we're going to define whiteness. Second, I'll give you a brief overview of Jews and whiteness. Third, we're going to look at the implications that these categories have. Uh, And then for whatever hours we have at the end, I'm happy to take take Q&A. So, uh, Let's start with the word sociology. I am a, um, I'm an historian by training. I'm a frustrated sociologist, because I love sociology, uh, even though I'm not actually trained in it. So um, sociology has defined whiteness. First of all, any former sociology majors here? Well, she's a retired sociology, Hi, sociology professor. Oh, my goodness. All right, so and what's your name? Jenny Cronin. Hi, nice to meet you. Good, good to see you collegially. And and if I just screw up your entire discipline, I apologize in advance. I'm doing the best I can as someone who wished they went into sociology. So uh, here's how it goes. Uh, Whiteness would appear to be a biological category, phenotype. What color is your skin? It might be a scientific question if you think about it. But actually, sociologists argue that whiteness Um, is more about relationship to power than it is the actual color of your skin. So it's difficult in understanding and defining whiteness if we stay on a biological frame, we have to go to a sociological frame. Here's the best way to look at it. Let's say you have 16 great-great-great-grandparents, however many you need to get 16 up there. And let's imagine that 15 of the 16 came from Italy. And the 16th came from Ireland. What are you? You're probably Italian. You probably have an Italian name, Italian culture, Italian religion, somewhere in there, that one 16th Irish maybe had some influence through the generations, but probably not. Let's give the same 15 Italians, but let's now make that 16th African. What are you now? Black. This is an American society, what is called the one drop rule. One drop of African blood makes you black. Even if you're presenting as white or as it's called passing, there are African-Americans who can present as white and who can pass and and be mistaken for white. So uh, in a certain sense, there are African-Americans who are considered too white and that's usually a political statement against them. They've sold out their black heritage in order to embrace the whiteness of power and privilege, even though their skin color doesn't change. So, so what I want to offer to you is that whiteness relates more to relationship to power and less to skin color, though it's quite clear that having white skin confers the privilege that when you walk into 7-Eleven, you're not going to get followed. And uh, of course, all the other issues that are involved. So I would like to say there are a few words in American Jewish life that if you say out loud will be triggering and emotional. And since I enjoy tenure and I am on a plane very early in the morning outside of the Valley of the Sun, I will tell you one word is Zionism. I'm not going to use that word now. I might use it tonight. The second word is quotas. Because when you mention quotas to Jews, the upset is immediate because in the 1920s quotas started as anti-Semitic and in the 1960s under Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Great Society and affirmative action it began with affirmative action then it went to, to to quotas and forced busing and and this is also highly problematic so so here's the funny backstory in the 1920s Quotas were created by white people to to keep communities of color on the outside. Very famously and infamously, Harvard University had an anti-Jewish quota because it wanted to keep itself white. And it kept Jews out because Jews were not considered white. Even though they were white on their skin, they weren't considered white in the 1920s. By the time Lyndon Johnson came around, quotas flipped. Now quotas were used to bring communities of color into power and to put whites on the margins in order to get some equity in our society. So if you're a self-interested African-American, you hated quotas in the 20s because they kept you out. You loved them in the 60s because it brought you in. If you're a white Christian, it's the opposite. Jews are the only group in America that hated quotas both times. (laughs) How is that possible? Something happened to American Jews, white American Jews, between the 1920s and the 1960s. They went from being on the margins, not being white, to being in the center and being white. So um, that's my ultimate argument for Eastern European Jewish whiteness. And it also, of course, goes along with the idea that that for American Jews, this was not always the case. And this is where we go to sociology, because then we can see change over time and how all that works. So this is Professor Eric Goldstein, who's at Emory University um, in Atlanta. And he's the one who's really um, one of the two leaders in our field on this question. And he wrote a book called uh, The Price of Whiteness. So if you were interested, it was his um, dissertation at the University of Michigan initially, uh, and, uh, and I highly recommend it. Um, and then um, this is Karen Brodkin. And she wrote a book called How, White, How Jews Became White Folks and what that says about race in America. It's um, more of a memoir-style book. It's an easier read. Um, I, tend to, I tend to use the Broadkin book when I, when I have audiences that I don't think are up for the dissertation-style work that Eric Goldstein has done. But if you're interested, these are, the, these are the two books to read. The thesis, if you put both of them together, is that Jews moved back and forth across the racial divide. Sometimes it was good for the Jews. Sometimes it wasn't good for the Jews. But one way we can understand all of American Jewish history is actually to run it through the theme of Jews and whiteness. So um, let's go look in the Gilded Age, which is 1877 to 1901. This was when the Eastern European Jewish immigration really got started. Jews were not considered white in the late 19th century. And now I mean white Jews. Like white, You show up from Russia or Poland, you're looking like maybe some of your ancestors looked. They were not considered white according to the sociological definition. Normally, that would be a bad thing. But what Eric Goldstein learned was it was actually a really good thing. Because... If you looked up non white Jews in the late 19th century and you asked somebody what it was, what is it like to be a of the Jewish race, right, as they would describe it then, they'd say, oh, if you're of the Jewish race, you are predisposed to study and read books. It's a good thing to have white Christian America think that you as a Jew are predisposed to that. Was that the primary difference between the uh... Irish immigrant Eastern European who were not when they came considered white, considered Yeah. This is such a good, I'll get a pencil for you in a moment. This is such a good question because um, this, so the Irish were called the black Irish in the mid-19th century in Boston. Socially, they were lower than free blacks on on the hierarchy. The flip side of it is, this is correct, so So Jews were considered non-white in a good way in this sense. And if you haven't figured that out already, it is deeply disturbing for Jews to be categorized as a separate race as Jews. Because the moment you do that, you're inviting Nazism. Because this is how um, um, scientific anti-Semitism emerged. We'll get to that in a moment. But what Eric Goldstein found out in his first book um, was that those Jews at that time didn't mind Being non white. Because when they walked around the street and introduced themselves to their new neighbors in America, they worked hard, they studied hard. There was what was later called the Judeo Christian character. Jews never used the word Judeo Christian, Christians used the word Judeo Christian, and it was good for the Jews to be linked to the majority culture in that religious um, foundation. Um, Jewish men were considered good husbands. Um, they were temperate, they didn't drink, and um, they were not beating their wives. Uh, and, and for all of this, um, Jews were not white and Jews were not marginalized. Well, I'm not, I'm not, getting, I'm not getting into that right now because uh, we could, that, that actually brings us to the contemporary period with, with some other stuff. Um, progressive era. 1901 to 1919, Jews are still not white, But now, as I just intimated, it was a really bad thing. Something called eugenics. The scientists of eugenics called eugenics science. We don't call it science. We call it pseudoscience. They claimed it was scientific. It actually wasn't. Um, This was a new approach to science that sought to improve people's health by looking at their genetic structure. And if you looked at their genetic structure, maybe through the intervention of modern scientific methods you could fix people that were wrong and as soon as you take a scientific approach to people and a scientific approach to race and jews are considered a separate race then if jews are bad as a separate race it's because their gene pool is wrong if you don't like jews because you think they killed jesus the remedy for that kind of anti-semitism is to convert to christianity Now, that may not be good for the Jews, but you're not dead. The remedy for eugenics is genocide. And this sadly, this idea started in North America, in the US. It went across the Atlantic to Germany, where the Nazis got it, and then it came back again. So um, well, here's here's some images of this. Um, In 1899, an author named William Ripley, believe it or not, I appreciate the three chuckles. My undergraduates don't get that joke. So, you know. Um, Not related to Ripley, believe it or not. In 1899, he wrote a book called Races of Europe. And in this book, Races of Europe, he said that um, Caucasians, that word I got from his Lyles class, Caucasians were divided into three different groups. And um, the first group was called Teutonic. Uh, And if you were a Teutonic, you were smart, Democracy-loving and successful. You came from Great Britain, Scandinavia, France, you know, northern Europe. Ireland, by the way, did not get Teutonic, even though it was in the north. If you were not Teutonic, you were Alpine. Alpine was Austria and Switzerland. Now, the bad news is you were not as smart as the Teutonics. The good news, you weren't Mediterranean. Mediterranean The Southern Europeans, who were the least intelligent, and um, Eastern European Jews were put into either the Semitic or the Mediterranean stock. Somebody basically said, "Yeah, but the Italians invented the Renaissance. How could that be?" So the scientists, the eugenic scientists, said, "Okay, good point. So Italians are idiots in everything except art, and we'll have to figure out why that happened. But that's kind of how they how they thought." So if you have a Teutonic who marries a Mediterranean, what are their kids? Yeah, that's a bit of a joke. We say Alpine because it's in the middle. Mediterranean would be a more powerful answer. Here's how it goes. Now Now we'll do any math majors. We'll do some math here. If you have a Teutonic person marry a Mediterranean person and they have a kid, and that kid grows up, And let's just have every kid who grows up only marry Teutonic. We'll just make it. How many generations before that, the descendant returns to 100% Teutonic stock? Never. Never. Thank you. You, It goes in half every time. You can get close to it after 1,000 generations, but one single intermarriage with an inferior gene pool forever ruins every descendant. This is what was scary about eugenics and what was scary about Jews not being perceived as white, because now if a Jew marries a Christian or an Aryan, if we bring it to Nazi Germany, and they have a child together, not only is that child doomed to be inferior based upon all of these ideas that get associated with eugenics, But every single descendant forever and ever is going to be inferior. This was the racist, anti-Semitic thinking that was going on. And it was very popular here in the United States. In 1916, Madison Grant, who was a lawyer, a natural scientist, wrote this book called The Passing of the Great Race. This was required reading at Yale. They did not study this as racism and anti-Semitism. They read it as science and truth. And I like book titles that give you the thesis. The passing of the great race, that's what happened when the Eastern European Jews came to America. The great race of old stock northern Teutonic European Americans was going to be ruined by by that. As as he wrote, um, unless the United States, he argued, excluded all inferior racial and ethnic groups, the superior Nordic strain, which he called the source of rulers, organizers, and aristocrats would be swamped by the weak, the broken, and the mentally crippled. Yep? The distinction at that time between the immigrant
0: Eastern Europeans and the German middle and
1: upper class? Oh, another great question. So in the mid-19th century, 100,000 Central European German-speaking Jews came to the US. They tended to be middle class. They tended to integrate more into Christian America. They were quite successful. Two million Eastern European Jews came in the next wave. Technically, they would both have the same genetic predisposition because they're Jews. In reality, of course, the Central Europeans were treated better in the real world because they had more power and privilege around their whiteness and around um, what what was going on. And the the sad note on that, there is a tremendous conflict amongst American Jews themselves between the Central Europeans and the Eastern Europeans. Um, and the shame that the Central Europeans put on many Eastern Europeans because they didn't like that they were poor, religiously traditional, and they thought that this migration would spark um, more anti-Semitism. So,
0: yeah.
1: Right. So, so now we're talking about Nazis and one sixteenth, one eighth, 1 8th. And, and, and so what's happening in eugenics in Germany and in the U.S. and even in a certain sense in the U.S. government policy is they are determining what percentage one has to be of what racial group in order to qualify as a member or, 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 or to see what it means. And the numbers are changing over time and place. And there are scholars, of course, who study how um intense one's jewishness must be under nazis in order to qualify for the death camps against you know in the contemporary period you know what what's happening as well isn't uh the the infighting amongst the jews in uh, the uh, central europeans versus the eastern europeans kind of similar to what goes on in israel versus in the yeah, right. So there, there are internecine conflicts in Israel and there was and still is in the U.S., yes. Because we are a diverse people in varieties of different ways and identity categories and we tend to, uh, to, 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 to see things sometimes quite differently. This is the KKK of the 1920s. The KKK of the 1920s was reinvented. It, it was not a continuous organization from Reconstruction. This one was pretty much not violent. That's not to say... I'm not saying that they believed in nonviolence. I'm saying that the KKK of Reconstruction killed people, and this KKK pretty much didn't. I did my first research as a graduate student in Georgia trying to find any examples of violence from the Georgia clan of the 20s. And you pretty much only found it if a man cheated on his wife. He'd get beat up. You know, It was kind of a moralistic um, street brawl rather than, than, than genetic. But, And the motto of the Klan in the 20s was 100% Americanism. This Klan was rooted in eugenics. It's the 100% part. That's where they're buying into this idea that there's a superior gene pool that's white and an inferior gene pool that isn't. And America is about 100% Americans, which would mean no Jews, no blacks, no Catholics, you know, and then you can make the list. So I want you to see that the KKK was rooted in this racist, scientific racism, scientific anti Semitism that put Jews um, on the outside. Uh, it's a gory picture, but it's about the skull experiments of the 1920s. Who's the smartest person? Whoever has the biggest brain. How do you know if they have the biggest brain? Get their skull, open it, drop some marbles. I mean, no, marbles, that's not scientific enough. Whatever the beads are, whatever you're going to call them in a scientific lab. And we're going to find a fancy word. We're going to call it cranial capacity. That sounds really smart. So whoever has a greater cranial capacity is smarter. So they're going to get four skulls, black man, black woman, white man, white woman. They're going to cut off the top. They're going to fill it up. They're going to count the beads to see who's smartest. Guess who won? The white man is the smartest, followed by the white woman, followed by the black man, followed by the black woman. Of course, they self-selected the skulls and they forced a few extra beads in when they needed to. This was not a scientific experiment to begin with and clearly cranial capacity has nothing to do with your intelligence. And this was taught in the 1920s in the Ivy Leagues. And of course, I would argue that it extended to the 1970s to Malaga Cove Intermediate School where we were getting these same kinds of racial
0: categories. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.ValleyBaitMidraj.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: In the 1920s, these ideas of eugenics and anti-Semitism translated into policy. Um, And here, especially with with the rabbi here and with Eddie here, and the work on immigration rights and and the rest of it. When I used to tell this story to my students prior to three years ago, they would gasp when they would learn um, what the United States federal government could do in terms of immigration. And now I give the lecture and they stare at me bored (laughs) because in 1921, for the first time in US history, Congress created a quota system for Europe. Now, Chinese had already been excluded, and Japanese had been uh, essentially excluded. But in 1921, even white Europeans were excluded. That's that's how fanatical the federal government was about racial definition. So here's how it worked. It was 1921. The 1920 census had been taken, but it wasn't finished yet because they didn't have computers. So they went back to the 1910 census, and they said, For every three people from a country in the 1910 census, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, for every 100 people, you get three immigration slots. 100 Italians in 1910, you get three more Italians coming this year. So count up the ethnic national origins of 1910, uh, find out 3% of every nation, and that's your new quota. The golden door of the Statue of Liberty closed in 1921. Now, 1921 was an emergency quota act. It happened during the lame duck session. They spent a couple of years figuring out what they really wanted to do. They came back to it in 1924. And in 1924, there were a couple things. First of all, the 1920 census was now available, so they went to the 1890 census. <laughs> Wait. Did he just say they went to the 1890 census when the 1920 census was available? Yes. Do you get the irony? It's more than just a mistake, you see. They also realized that 3% quota was too generous, and they dropped it to 2%. 3 to 2%, we can already see this country is racist and anti-Semitic, and it's rooted in these eugenic scientific notions of Jews as not white. All that said... Why use the 1890 census instead of the 1920? Lower numbers of of Jews and other undesirables, right? Um, The Southern Europeans, the Mediterranean, Eastern European. If you wanted 2% of what America looked like in 1890 or 3% of what America looked like in 1920, you're going to go for the first one. So, I argue that the 1924 Immigration Act was state sponsored anti Semitism. It was also racism. Uh, and Mexico and Canada, by the way, um, there were two exceptions. Canada was accepted from the 1924 law because of North American goodwill and hospitality. I put up pictures of very white looking Canadians that nobody knows is a Canadian, so people can say, oh, I didn't know he was a Canadian, you know. Um, and Mexico was also given an exception for North American hospitality, but that's not really why. They did it because Western agribusiness needed cheap farm labor, and they demanded the ability for Mexicans to cross the border back and forth. Later, there's something called the Bracero Program, which also did this. So, so the notion of immigration across our southern border is actually rooted in definitions of whiteness and the way in which eugenics and scientific racism plays, has played out in federal policy now for almost 100 years. Here's how it worked out in the real world. If you did the 1890 census, 2% on the the 1924 law, there were, for Great Britain and Northern Ireland, 65,721 quota slots. All right, you're in London, and it's 1930, and you decide you don't want to be in London, you want to be in New York. What are the chances that you can go to New York? Pretty good because there's 65,721 possible spots, and probably not a whole lot of people in England that have a desperate need to get out of the country and get to America. Italy, 5,802. Almost nobody from Italy could come to the US after 1924. So effectively, after 1924, the northern Teutonics had free immigration. And the Alpines and Mediterraneans and Semitic and Eastern Europeans, effectively not. So how do Jews become white? According to Karen Brodkin, Jews become white in the 1950s. You see, after World War II, the anti-Semitic barriers began to drop. By the way, in 1945, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. In 1960, very little anti-Semitism. And through the 50s, all the data shows it decreasing, which means Jews could buy homes in neighborhoods that used to have restrictive covenants against Jews. Jews could get into undergraduate and graduate schools. They could get into medical schools. There is a generation of Jewish pharmacists who should have gone to medical school, but because of the quotas, were not permitted. And pharmacy school became an alternative for mostly Jewish men who who could not get into medical school because of the quotas. Um, vacation spots now opened up to Jews. And um, Jews were now admitted to places that were considered whites only. Yeah. When
0: they passed the law in 24, did they think of in terms of the and Mediterranean and so forth, or have they
1: it's exactly how they were thinking in the books that I used. That I showed, uh, the passing of the great race. The, the, this was standard mainstream reading. These were bestsellers, actually. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, so here's some complications of whiteness. It's the American dream to have anti-Semitism drop, to have a job where you can buy a home in the suburbs to send your kid to a public school where they can grow up with other kids, Jews and non-Jews together. And at least when I was raised in the 1970s and I learned the story of my parents and my grandparents, you know, the classic immigrant story from Eastern Europe, this was a great story. And then I went to graduate school. Because it turned out that even though those restrictive housing covenants had dropped Jew, they hadn't dropped Blacks. So Jews were moving into all white neighborhoods, all white Christian neighborhoods, but all white neighborhoods. So Jews were becoming part of a racist system, enjoying white supremacy and white privilege, even as their intent was not to be racist, their intent was to live their American dream. And this is now where the category of Jews and whiteness becomes more complicated. Because at this moment, Jews are both white, and feeling marginal because of the history that they just had before World War II, and certainly what, what ha- happened with the Shoah, with the Holocaust, said it, at the same time that white privilege is now being conferred. Yeah. Was that all over the country? Was that in the South? Was that in uh, Arizona?
0: Arizona still
1: has a war in the books that says Jews can't be Yeah. So um, there's a, a big debate among American Jewish historians on how much regionalism matters. Hacia Diner at NYU argues not, not as much as we think. Um, I've written about the civil rights movement, so I initially thought, oh, it means a lot. And then the more research I did, I realized Southern Jews and Northern Jews were more similar than I ever imagined they were. Um, so now I'll, I'll, I'll channel my inner sociologist to say, yeah, Arizona could still have that law in the books, but when we look sociologically, when we look at the, the Eastern European white Jews as a group, millions of, across the country, it's the story of moving out of anti-Semitism into whiteness and privilege generally, to the point that there are disproportionate numbers of Jews in the elite, however you want to count it. And I, you all know that in the Trump administration, some of his leading policymakers are Jews, even as these are Jewish organizations out in the streets who are protesting against them, that his own uh, daughter and son-in-law you know, are Jews. So uh, it, it becomes very difficult to try to kind of put Jewishness into any single political category. Uh, and, uh, and and yeah, so Jews ended up in whiteness. as
0: many people running
1: around with and And they looked more like the Christians. Correct. And you mentioned earlier about Chabad. So there, there is a debate going on now in social media that uh, Orthodox Jews who present as Tradition-bound, you know, Hasidic-style dress. Do they lose their privilege by putting on that clothes? And sadly, there's s- stories almost every week in New York City with physical assaults of Orthodox Jews for the clothes they are wearing in, in order to say it. Um, and come on because of drinking, the yeah. form of drinking. Oh, yeah. all right, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's mostly on Purim, I would assume. So. Um, uh, I'm not going to enter that conversation in that debate, except to say that sociologically speaking, you know, by, by the 1950s and certainly by 1960s, it worked out. Um, capital campaigns, JCCs, here's an interesting question in my first book. You know, When Jews move into the white suburbs and there's racial exclusion in those suburbs, are the white Jews going to be racist too, like their new neighbors, or are they going to remain as non-white thinkers and help? And everyone talks about Jews and civil rights movement. Come to tonight's talk. I will upset all of you for everything you ever thought. It'll be great. I look forward to seeing you. Um, and, uh, and here's the data. When Oh, in 1951, the Anti-Defamation League did a study of Jewish community centers in the country. And the first question was, do you admit non-Jews? Okay, Half the JCCs were Jewish only, and I'm just assuming that there were not many Jews of color in 1951. So we don't know if they would have admitted African-Americans if they would allow. But half of them did have open membership for everyone. So the ADL looked at the half that would admit non-Jews. Half of those were racially exclusive. So in half of America, Jewish organizations replicated Jim Crow segregation. Um, even in the north and and even in their own uh, places. So let's look at Southern Jews as an example. Uh, Southern Jews give us the question, what, oh, this is actually related to your earlier question, what mattered most, Jewishness or whiteness? Because if you're a Southern Jew, the civil rights movement was problematic because while the Northern Jews came down and were heroes for marching with Dr. King and protesting, they went back to the North and were, and were lauded for what they did. If you were a Southern Jew, especially in a small town, first of all, you were afraid because you remember the lynching of Leo Frank And you knew that you were one of the few Jews in a little town. And you knew that you ran the business on Main Street, which is what many of them did. And you knew that whether you were pro or anti-civil rights, half of your community was going to boycott you. Uh, And there were bombings of churches and even a synagogue. Southern Jews lived with palpable fear. And then when the northern whites came down and left, they were left to clean up the mess behind. So... Um, I want to quote from um, Rabbi Alan Krause of Blessed Memory. Um, when he was a rabbinic student in 1965 at HUC in Cincinnati for his rabbinic thesis, he went down and interviewed Southern Reform rabbis on civil rights with the condition that he would not reveal their name or their location like forever, you know, like basically for at least a generation until there wouldn't be a threat. So he was able to get what I hope would be more honest answers. When I went into the archives, the quotes were great, but it would say, Rabbi A from Community 3 said, and I'm like, this is not helpful. Because as a scholar, you got to know who and when it, w- when it was. The good news for me is that Rabbi Krauss's son was my camper at Camp Swig in the Santa Cruz Mountains growing up. And he was on sabbatical in, in Jerusalem that year. And I used something called a fax machine back in the day. And I sent him a message on the fax machine asking if he would release the key to me, because it had been like 30 years or 40 years at that point. And thankfully, Rabbi Krauss uh, did that. And um, I was able to be the first one to get access to this. And Rabbi Krauss, after he retired, um, wanted to put all this in and get it published in a book. Um, the, sadly, um, he passed away before the book was published. The good news is his son, Steve, my former camper, worked with Mark Bauman in Atlanta, and they finished the book, and it's been published by University of Alabama Press, I believe. And if you're interested, it's got all of it. So here's Milton Grafman from Birmingham, Alabama. My colleagues who have shouted the loudest have not been willing to take Southern pulpits, period. And the main reason is economic. you like this one. Oh, the rabbi just left. They like their fifteen dollars and $20,000 a year pulpits. <laughs> if you are truly sincere about your prophetic Judaism, then you would not hesitate to take a pulpit in Gadsden, Alabama, for $9,000 a year. This is what a prophet does. But he has not the right to tell someone else to commit economic suicide unless he's willing to make a sacrifice himself. Rabbi Moses Landau of Cleveland, Mississippi, on Whether he was going to be involved with the civil rights movement, yes. But it would have been limited to 24 hours. 24 hours later, I wouldn't be in the state anymore. The majority of the people of the city has been vehemently opposed to integration, including a great number in the Jewish community. The Jewish community could not exist, could not exist if they in any way were involved in the civil movement. Freedom riders from the north came down and got put in jail. The southern rabbis were asked to go visit them in jail. He said, I must emphasize that I will not on my own enter any prison or jail without being an accredited chaplain to that prison, except when I'm called by the warden or any other authority, I would not recommend to any of my rabbinic colleagues to adopt a different policy. What about being a, civil, a rabbi in the South involved in the civil rights movement? Quote, it is your privilege to be a martyr. There are dozens of vacant pulpits. You can pack yourself up within 24 hours and leave. Can you say the same of about 1,000 Jewish families in the state? I am paid by my congregation, and as long as I eat their bread, I shall not do anything that might harm any member of my congregation without their consent. Southern Jews were not living with the same white privilege that northern Jews were. And the irony here is, that it was the privilege of whiteness for Jews in the North that gave them the ability to go in the South and help in the movement. And here I think we see regional difference on what's going on. So here's what Eric Goldstein's thesis was in his book. He said, Northern Jews could only help Dr. King and the civil rights movement after anti-Semitism waned in the North, after Jews became white. Only with the privilege of whiteness could they reach across the racial divide? That in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, there was clearly civil rights work all the time, but Jews were nowhere near even thinking about that. And then if we look at Southern Jews' reluctance to enter the movement, they're demonstrating that to be true because they're still vulnerable and they're still at risk. So this new thinking, this new approach actually shows that Jewish construction of whiteness the definition of privilege is what actually powers how and when Jews become involved in social justice movements. All right? I have uh, a quiz for you. And here, and I just have to like, you're all, this is an honor code, Valley Midrash honor code. This is also going to be tonight. So if, when you come tonight, you cannot, and you get this quote, you have to tell me and go to another group, and you can't, You can't give the answer, okay? So I need to know who said this and when. A segregated school system is not merely an unfair system, but it is a wasteful and inefficient system. Nevertheless, we do not believe a federal law to equalize educational opportunity by public subsidy should ever be used as a means to attack segregation. So long as the law guarantees that states having segregated school systems do not discriminate financially against minority children, we believe we should support the bill. What is that argument? What is that argument saying? Separate but equal. Is okay. Separate but equal is okay. Thank you. That's pencil worthy. After class, I'll get you a pencil. Um, and where does separate but equal come in in our history? Brown versus Board of Education for the attorneys in the room, all five of you. um, 1954, the Brown decision famously says that separate is inherently unequal. Therefore, even if you give equal money to black and white schools, it's still wrong. It's still segregation. So this person said, we do not believe a federal law to equalize educational opportunities should be used to attack segregation so long as the law uh, guarantees that, that states do not discriminate financially. It's OK. Um, any of our lawyers present know what, what uh, the Brown decision overturned, what case it overturned? Plessy. Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. Well done. In the Plessy case, which is actually interstate transportation, the argument was you could have different um, railroad cars for different races as long as you put the same amount of money in each of the railroad cars. First, they never did put the same amount of money in. And second, even if they did, it wouldn't have mattered because racial segregation, by definition, is, un- is unconstitutional. So this is a defense of Plessy. And this is opposition to Brown. Who would have said it? Anyone know anyone who would support Plessy and oppose Brown? Who would be in favor of maintaining Jim Crow segregation? Uh, um, It'd have to be between 1896 and 1954. Wallace. George Wallace, thank you. Classic segregationist governor, you know. Yeah, Rabbi Stephen S. Wise. <laughs> New York Free Synagogue. Okay, so thank you. I have my wow-o-meter and my oh my god-o-meter. Uh, and, and, and that, that's, tonight is all wow-o-meter stuff, so, so we're gonna bring this one back tonight. Uh, here's, here's the backstory. Um, after World War II, the federal government decided it needed to support public education because of the Cold War. There's no way that we can beat the commies if Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana are in charge of education. So the federal government began devoting more and more of the federal budget to support local schools. This is a good thing. It's a Jewish thing, strong public education. So Rabbi Wise went from New York City. By the way, if you don't know, Rabbi Stephen S. Wise was the founder of the Free Synagogue of New York. He was probably the most important rabbi of his generation. He was personal friends with President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was the first American Jew to learn about the Holocaust. And he told FDR immediately about it. And FDR told Rabbi Wise to hold the information for what turned out to be four months, which he did, because he trusted the president. And historians now criticize Rabbi Weiss for having trusted FDR because they said he should have gone public immediately. So he is not some obscure rabbi who said a racist thing. This is, we don't have a pope in Judaism, but if we did, Stephen S. Weiss could have been the pope of his generation in terms of the influence that he had. So he went, took a train from New York down to D.C., and he sat in a Senate subcommittee on education hearing, and he argued in favor of, more federal support for public schools and then when he finished he got pulled aside by these george wallace type southern racist bigoted senators and i don't know if they called him boy but maybe they did and they said you know here's the deal i know you want money for public schools we're not going to end jim Crow segregation so either we get an amendment to this bill explicitly stating it will do nothing to end Jim Crow, or you never leave committee. This bill will never get to the floor and will never get passed. So if you're Stephen S. Wise, what on earth do you do in that moment? And what he, So you know what he did, right? He made his compromise. He opened by saying, a segregated system is not merely an unfair system, but it is wasteful and inefficient. He did that first line to save himself ethically, And then he said, nevertheless, we do not believe, blah, blah, blah. That's how he navigated the moment. This is called liberal gradualism. That's the fancy word for it, which is you can't get all of your change all of the time at the same moment. So let's do the piece that we can. Let's get a lot of money out to a lot of kids in the country. And even though I know black kids in the South won't get the money, um, it's better to have some money than no money, right? That's where his head was at. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was too young in 1947, by the way, that's when it was, this happened, to, um, to be there. But let's just imagine he was there. Let's imagine he got the same deal that Rabbi Weiss got. Would Dr. King have taken the deal? I don't think he would have taken it. Because he's for civil rights and racial equality. Yeah, but if, was a different world. Well, so Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was not in the business of perpetuating Jim Crow segregation and making sure federal dollars only go to white students, right? That was the opposite of what he was there for. Now, clearly in 47, it's going to be a much harder pull than it was 10 years later. That notwithstanding, I want to show you the essential difference between Rabbi Wise and Martin Luther King Jr. Because Wise enjoyed white privilege. He enjoyed the ability to make that compromise because of what he walked into that Senate hearing room with. Dr. King did not enjoy whiteness. He did not enjoy that privilege. And I suppose he could have sold out and supported segregation. And then, of course, those in the African-American community would have rightfully um, criticized him. So uh, whiteness in the contemporary period uh, is a whole new ballgame. And I know that Ilana Kaufman has been here this year to speak. I don't know if any of you got got to hear Ilana. Um, She's an African-American Jewish woman, the head of the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative. Oh, please check. Yeah, please absolutely check the recordings here. And she also did an Eli Talk. That's a Jewish version of a TED Talk. If you type in Ilana Kaufman Eli Talk, that'll come up as well. Um, And she is working now first on figuring out how many Jews of color there are because, sadly, she's determined... That all the federation studies done around the country are not asking the right questions and are having a lot of assumptions about Jews being white, then informing questions they don't even realize that that's what the questions are doing, and then we're just missing you know what what is probably a whole lot of people. So I'm having lunch with Ilana and I'm talking sort of about my academic work and the thesis here, and. Um, and the reform movement and the NAACP on the 50-year anniversary of the Selma march, the famous one with Rabbi Heschel and Dr. King, they're going to redo the march from Selma to D.C. and they're going to do a rally for voting rights. And and like I'm like, you know, oh no, it's not 50 years ago. <laughs> and and Alana's like, well, Facebook, like imagine the Facebook pictures from this march. 200 rabbis went. A lot of my friends went, but none of them were guilty of what I'm about to be concerned about. White rabbi, Torah, African-American from the NAACP, everyone's smiling. Because if they were there 50 years earlier, the police would be shooting them and beating them up. And they'd be losing their jobs. And now they're celebrating. And for Ilana, who is now representing Jews of color, and in this case, African-American Jews, Where in the Facebook picture am I? What happens if you're black and Jewish? So as I expressed to her, because she was so right, my understanding of American Jewish history is how much American Jews are being more American than Jewish. That's what my interest is. And I'm realizing that I'm actually saying how much are white American Jews able to become more American and less Jewish, so that the whole supposition of my academic work is rooted in Jews being white. And then Alana says, what if you're Jewish fully and completely? And what if you're black fully and completely? And what does black Jewish relations mean now? Because even the word relations assumes Jewish whiteness and makes invisible black Jews. So all I could do with Alana is say, you are so right uh, a new book needs to be written and I am not the one to write that book. <laughs> Thank you all. I can take questions for as much time as we have. I think a, a, a real example of the attempt to assimilate and this was, I think, the reform movement in the 40s and 50s very much moved towards almost being, might be considered a Jewish Christian sort of service in terms of uh, of the, earlier than that, but I mean, it, it, you know, in, in this perception, of, of the, in, we both grew up in the South, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and, and that I think was a real example of, of, of that attempt to really move in to mainstream. Yeah, this is fascinating. So the question is on the reform movement. And what I'll do is bring everyone back to sort of the late 19th century through to the middle of the 20th century, at least. This is what we now call classical reform Judaism. That's So if you happen to be a reform Jew right now, you're not going to be offended by what I say, because the movement changed in the mid to late 1960s away from this. Uh, Ethical monotheism and the idea that Judaism should purge itself of all non-rational rituals and embrace modernity through uh, ethics. Um, created a movement which sought radical inclusion and acceptance within the Christian majority. Um, in fact, the um, bar mitzvahs um, were, in some cases, the canceled in favor of confirmation. The Sabbath was changed from Saturday until Sunday. Hebrew was all but eliminated. They asked you to remove your prayer shawl and your kippah when you walked in to pray, um, and uh, in San Francisco, the Jewish country club, the Concordia Argonaut Club, the biggest event of the year was the Crab Fest. <laughs> so um, that's because crab is like the, uh, that, that is the, the staple food of San Francisco, and, and, and I will say that I appreciate the laughter because you're from the West because when I give this talk in the Midwest or in the East, they gasp to find out that the Jews enjoyed the crab. And then I go back to San Francisco and say, I was just in Cleveland and they just gasp at all of you because you eat crab, right? And then they laugh that they got gasped at by the people in Cleveland and the people in (laughs) Cleveland gasped but they got laughed at for gasping at the fact that Jews eat crab. And I was saying, yeah, this is, in one sense it's regional but in the other it really goes to the reform movement and the reform movement rejected Kashrut in order to as you described, become white. Um, they would say become American, but clearly or they were looking assimilation. assimilation. They're they're looking for that privilege, and now I'm going to look for new voices when I can get it. Yeah.
0: Um, so, grow, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and just to speak to your
1: point about uh, the Jews getting uh, being uh, able
0: to go into into other areas where they hadn't previously been welcomed or. They still stuck together though. I mean was that for their own comfort or their own or because that's where that's where they were allowed to go? Um, my street had 39, it was called Levering Circle, and it mm-hmm. had
1: 39 houses and 38 of them were Jewish. Yeah, so um, before I answer that question, I, I will give you a part of the lecture I didn't get to. In 1964, Milton Gordon um, a sociologist, wrote a book called Assimilation in American Life. Um, so if you actually know this answer ahead of time, Professor, just we'll see if anyone else can get it. Uh, and, and he was talking about you know sort of European immigrants to America, even though he didn't say so. But he devised a seven-step tier for becoming American, which is like, you're a new immigrant, you show up, What's the first thing you do to become American? And then after that, what's the second thing you do? What's the third thing you do? All the way up to the last thing. Like, when you do level seven, you are an American. What's level seven? Moving to the suburbs? That, if it was there, it was a little lower. Join the Joining the country club. Uh, social inclusion was, was on the list, but lower than seven. I'll be gendered in my answer. Those Christians may say they love you and accept you, but would they let you marry their daughter? Intermarriage is level seven. That's when American Jews knew they made it in America. So here's what I say to Jewish leaders, lay and professional. The goal of emancipation, this also goes to classical reform, the goal of modern Jewish life is civil equality in a Christian-dominated society. That's Jews want to be free and equal and have all the chances that everyone else has. And according to Professor Gordon, that will inevitably and must end in intermarriage. So um, for those arguing against intermarriage, I would say you're arguing against emancipation and equity and Jewish equality. So um, where I live in Marin County, California, uh, the intermarriage rate is 90% um, uh, among families with school-aged children. It was 75% overall, but that's because the older ones tend to be less intermarried, the younger ones tend to be more. And um, so what can I say except California, the Bay Area, and my county are the most progressive, best, most modern Jewish community that ever was in earth because almost everybody intermarries. Um, and this, of course is the ultimate 21st century American Judaism question, which is what is Judaism? When Jews have whiteness, power, privilege, equality, the ability to marry anyone that they fall in love with and want to marry. Um, And even though in suburban Philadelphia, we were having a lot of integration, but not on the marriage side, they hadn't worked quite up to to level seven yet. So um, there's a challenge for you. Yeah. Wouldn't the acceptance of doctors into Christian hospitals also be a a great Right, yeah, so, so dropping the anti-Semitic barriers was critical, and what you're describing was happening through the 1950s. So the data in 1950 about um, Jewish physicians, I mean, Jewish hospitals were created because of anti-Semitism, because the Jewish physicians were not permitted in Christian hospitals. By 1960, for the most part, the, the Jews could get into those places. One more, one anyone else has not had a chance to ask a question? OK, please. Yeah.
0: let's flunk the heaps, which meant they would go directly to the front line. Yeah. That was one thing. Uh, The other thing is, in Israel, it's sort of the same thing. The Zionist movement wanted, you know, European Jews, secular Jews, so they, they try to get the Yemenites and the Ethiopians to become white.
1: Right. Um, so in my Black Power book, I have a little bit on how some of, of the sort of North African Jewish communities that immigrated to Israel are going to play on the Black Power movement here in the U.S. in order to go after what we now call Ashkenormative thinking in Israeli policies, because most of the Israeli power structure is, is Eastern European white Ashkenazi, even though the majority of Israelis are actually Jews of color. So um, almost... Any, any other questions? Yeah, thank, what's that? Yeah, winning lottery numbers. Winning lottery numbers, yeah. <laughs> I, I can take my guess. So thank you so much, and thank you for staying a little later.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture.